What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The following program is a member of the Cheap Pops Podcast Network. Cheap Pops. From Geppetto Studios in New Freedom, Pennsylvania, welcome to the Cosmic Geppetto Podcast. Your home for inclusive, positive geek culture, where we talk about movies, comics, music, books, and whatever else we feel like. Please welcome your host, their mission, to fight injustice, to right that which is wrong, and to serve all mankind. Brad Mendenhall. Hey everybody, it is a nomadic episode of the Cosmic Geppetto Podcast. Deadpool co-creator Fabian Niciesa joins the show to talk about his amazing career in comics and also make fun of my inability to pronounce his name. But first, KJ Valencic and Alex Thompson have thoughts on the recently announced Breaking Bad film. excited to have these two guys with me first from galaxy quest minute we have alex thompson alex how are you uh, i'm pretty good by grabthar's hammer good to be here <laughs> what a great minute by minute an excellent addition to the genre uh i had a lot of fun guessing with you guys and uh you were able to pull together a real all-star you got paul Shear to guess with you guys which was amazing the wonders of social media that one just kind of worked out uh, really nicely. I know because most of the other guests that I tried to, that were reaches that I tried to go for, couldn't get hold of. But yeah, we had Paul Shear and he was great. Talked about the Amazon series that he was working on that's unfortunately in hiatus right now, um, as as those things tend to be every time a studio exec uh, changes, the kind of all their pet projects go into pause or holding pattern. So I believe that's where that is as of last I've heard. But Paul Shear was great to talk to anyway. Yeah, he's fantastic. He does the great podcast, How Did This Get Made, which is one of my favorites. It feels like every great comedy, especially television comedy of the last 20 years, he's had an appearance on it and always makes it better. So uh, a very cool pool. Uh, great show. I recommend everyone uh, you know, just, just binge some uh, Galaxy Quest Minute. It's a great movie. Allison's partner did a great job of uh, bringing it to life minute by minute. I highly recommend it. Thanks. Check that out, folks. Also awesome is we have KJ Falensic back. KJ, how you doing? Hi, I'm doing okay. I'm just kind of having a nice day here, talking with some people, so that'll be good. Yeah, it's uh, fantastic to have you back. I feel like we haven't had you since our 100th episode spectacular. Yeah, that was it. That's my only time on the Cosmic Geppetto podcast. Glad to have you back. Uh, glad we were able to work something out. Of course, it is interesting because we're here to talk about, well, the beginning of this conversation is it was just announced they're working on a Breaking Bad film. I was looking for people who were, were interested in talking about it, 
And KJ, you are on because you don't like the show. I don't stop watching TV shows, even bad ones. Uh, once I commit probably at least a season, I- I'm going to finish it, which makes Baking, Breaking Bad really special in that I stopped watching it about halfway through season three because I was just not enjoying myself and uh, wasn't for me. Plot, do you remember what the plot line was around that point? I don't remember exactly. It might have been shortly after, like, I think season two ended with the plane accident or that was the uh, beginning of season three. That's the end of season two. Uh, had you met the, the chicken man, Giancarlo Esposito as Gus Fring? I don't believe so. It's been a couple of years. I'm not trying to venture in a spoiler territory. I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out, trying to place exactly where in season three, I guess you would have left off. Oh, feel free to, to spoil it. Uh, I haven't watched this show in five years, so I don't think I'm going to finish it now. Um, so, I mean, if you left off in season three, that means you either would have like just met him or been just about to. I'm, tr- I'm trying to figure out because there is a point where that show, I feel like definitely kind of picks up steam. It is a lot, I think, slower. And then the last like two seasons or so are like every episode is just a holy crap what the hell just happened now yeah i can it's definitely it definitely is like a i think a slower ride a slower build in the beginning so i if there's a time for someone to check out i do feel like that is kind of it and i love the show i really love breaking bad however it's a weird show where i enjoyed it but i don't feel the need to rewatch every episode it's not like buffy the vampire slayer where i watched every episode and then i have it on dvd and i would rewatch every episode and and then I would have my favorites I would go do, back to, but still feel the need that everything was so rewatchable. Breaking Bad had plenty of episodes that even the ones I enjoyed, it could be a real painful show to watch because it was you're watching the descent of a good man into a bad man and watching him destroy his family during the process. It could be some uncomfortable viewing. I also remember there being parts of sometimes where the final dynamics I didn't find as enthralling. So I, I could see someone not getting into it. I do sort of remember there being a point during the third season before the, the Gus character really got cooking where I was like, okay, these are seems like episodes. I don't want to say they were a bit of a slog for me, but I definitely was watching them knowing that this was building blocks for what would I was hoping would be more interesting later. When you were talking about rewatchability, I think it part of the reason why that show doesn't have that same kind of rewatchability factor is because to me, it's almost like one movie. It's like a 40-something hour movie, kind of. And so saying I want to go back and rewatch an episode is like saying I want to go back and rewatch, you know, a three-minute stretch of a movie or of a more traditional length movie. And so it, I can see why you wouldn't have that urge to go back and rewatch, you know, season five, episode 10, because that's – the show never kind of pandered to the audience in the way that a lot of TV shows do where they – they recap in case you weren't paying attention last episode. Yeah, they also didn't have any uh, shorter plots. It was it was very serialized. So like you mentioned, uh, Buffy, Brad, uh, even though there would be some of the longer arcs there, they would still have uh, shorter plots for that might go one episode, maybe a couple of episodes to keep things uh, moving fast. The, there are only a, one or two episodes I can think of that had that kind of singular, kind of singular contained thing. Uh, the episode with, with the fly. The episode where they were out in the desert and they ran out of water. Honestly, I think those are kind of the only two. It seems like a lot of shows are having that reboot or continuation or next chapter. And there's been talk of NYPD Blue. There's going to be a new version of that. 
following the main character's son as he tries to become a cop. And um, I'm a big fan of NYPD Blue. And it's on Hulu. And I just we just got Hulu not too long ago. And I rewatched it. And what they would do is they would have the uh, overarching plot lines throughout the run of the show. But each episode, there'd be a B and a C plot that would get wrapped up inside that episode. And, and I enjoyed that. It, it was great because if the big series long or season long plot didn't have any movement, at least you could see some cases get solved or some minor re- resolution. And Breaking Bad certainly didn't do that, which I which I enjoyed a lot of the time. However, I think there is a problem with a lot of shows have taken that same formula and I think it hurts them. There's been a lot of talk recently about the Marvel Netflix series, uh, two of them getting canceled, Luke Cage and Iron Fist both getting canceled. And as much as I've enjoyed some of the Marvel Netflix shows, they do suffer from the same thing, what we're talking about, where they would just be, the season would just be one long episode, often no episode to episode resolution which I think a little frustrating. And also those are being shows that would benefit from them, especially uh, Daredevil being a lawyer. It's like, well, why not have it just a court, him having a court case every episode or every two episodes. So there would be feeling you would have that movement. It's something that I feel Breaking Bad really started and has been an influence and not always the best influence. Well, that's, that's the balancing act of TV, right? I mean, is, is on the one hand, you want to tell big stories. On the other hand, you have the, the need to make your story encapsulate into your 44 something minutes. I mean, with a Netflix show, at least you can kind of argue most people watch a Netflix show in binge mode, right? Like it's not that often that I tune on on Netflix to watch one episode of Jessica Jones, right? Usually I'm putting it on to have it on for five hours. Like Breaking Bad was a TV show, but Breaking Bad didn't even really hit its stride commercially until it became bingeable. I think it was when it went wound up on some streaming service that it, cause it was going to get canceled before it completed. And then it wound up on some streaming service and people figured out, Oh, this is a great show to throw on for eight hours in a row. Then it kind of really picked up steam in the last couple seasons became huge. Yeah. I remember when I was watching it, I watched it on Netflix and I would end up watching three, four hours, three, four episodes in a row. I remember be just being real angry and it was like a first, I think it was the first season or possibly early second season where Jesse and Walter get kidnapped right at the end of the episode. I was like, oh, crap, it's 11 o'clock. I really should be going to bed, but I got to see what happens. It's weird because now the show is sort of remembered as being a big hit and all the uh, awards and accolades it received. And uh, I think it was always pretty well respected critically, but it wasn't until it started streaming and people were able to catch up with it. It it became that big hit. Uh, What was funny is the first episode that I watched on TV was the last episode of the show. I just barely caught up at the show in time on uh, Netflix in time for the finale. So just to actually have data points here, their first season, which was a cutoff season, I think due to a writer's strike, the looks like the viewers in millions from about 1.07 to 1.5 million Second season, about the same, 1.04 million to 1.66. Third season, about 1.2 to just under 2, so gaining a little bit of steam. Fourth season, uh, got up to about 1.5 to, had one episode that was 2.5, but other than that, about 2. And then season 5, they did that, that split season thing that AMC loves to do, where they do half a season, take a break, and then do half a season. 
Uh, so the first half of season was consistently about 2-2 to 2-9. And then the back half was where it became crazy because by that point, everyone had binged and caught up. And their lowest episode in that half was 4.4 million going all the way up to 10 million for the finale. That's that's crazy. I also started watching it on Netflix, probably about that that midpoint where you were saying it was around two and two, two and a five, two and a half. Watch watching back to back episode, um, just kind of waiting for something to happen. Alex, have you been watching Better Call Saul? I was watching it. I, I eventually um, I eventually cut cord with cable. So I've kind of fallen out of every TV show, but I was enjoying it while I was watching it. I'm one of the people that I kind of trust Vince Gilligan's, and this may segue a bit into what you were, what we were originally here to talk about. I trust his artistic integrity that I don't think, I didn't think he was just making the show for the sake of having a TV show set in this universe that would make a lot of money. I trusted that there was some artistic integrity behind it, and I really do enjoy it. Like I said, I kind of stopped watching just because I didn't have cable anymore, and I wasn't going to pay for someone's streaming service to catch one show. You're right. If he wanted to make a lot of money, there are easier ways for him to make money. Yeah, I mean, he could set an entire he could set series after series in the Breaking Bad verse if he really if it was just about cash grab. We mentioned the Marvel Netflix series. He could have an entire AMC Breaking Bad verse series. It's following the the Terminator twins from Mexico and following Saul Goodman and following what's happening to the the White family now and you know every minor character that didn't get killed by the end of it. Spoiler. And even ones that did, you could go follow them if you want, if, if that's all he was interested in. Do you think AMC pitched that? I mean, it, that's not unprecedented with AMC spinning off their shows. Oh, I'm sure they at least suggested it. Um, that's probably part of where Better Call Saul came from is in some order, once you have a big show, execs tend to say, hey, you know, hey, all your other pro- all your other projects tend to suddenly look a lot better than they used to. I know some Vince Gilligan script that was mothballed became a show for a season or two just because suddenly he was Vince Gilligan, the guy who did Walking or Walking Dead, Jesus, uh, the guy who did Better Call Saul. Do you remember that movie, The Belko Experiment from a couple of years ago? That was some uh, James Gunn script that he wrote a long time ago that suddenly became a lot more interesting to make as a movie because now he was James Gunn, the guy from Guardians, instead of James Gunn, the guy from that weird Slither movie. All your ideas tend to look a lot better. And execs tend to be a lot more interested in your ideas once you have a big hit. I imagine there probably was a bit of a two-way street where they said, hey, let's let's do a lot of things and let's really monetize the crap out of this. And then at some point he probably said, hey, I've got this TV. I've got, I want to follow him. This one character. That's cool, right? Everyone liked him. Well, and also you want to be in business with uh, Bob Odenkirk. He, he is, even before... Breaking Bad. He he was a known quantity with the, what was it, Mister Show? It was a show that had a lot of love, and he he was considered to be a top tier comedic talent. I'm just thinking, you're you're right. There is that thing that when you get successful, all of a sudden, a lot of the bad ideas from your past all of a sudden get made. With Tarantino, after Pulp Fiction, he basically brushed off a script that he wrote as a kid, which was Dusted on. Basically, everything vampire related in that movie was from like a script he wrote in high school, and then he just brushed it off and added the first third of the movie. And you could tell because it was just a much better script from then. And then you have like a really cool, tense Tarantino script, and then it ends up in a vampire strip club. He's like, oh, okay, that's what he wrote when he was a dumb kid. But Tarantino at that point could get anything made. We don't actually know a whole lot about what this Breaking Bad movie is. And the um, I, I sort of feel like 
the headlines have been a little misleading because you go to Entertainment Weekly's website and it says like Breaking Bad movie from Vince Gilligan. And then you sort of go through and it's like it's a movie that takes place in the Breaking Bad universe. So it's not Walt and Jesse, the, the early years or some sort of like unknown story or it turns out Walt didn't really die at the end of the last episode. Well, again, that's kind of the same or, you know, that's again, the need for people to get people to click on your article. I mean, the article that you got that you sent us said the title of it says, and I quote breaking bad movie in the works. And the picture that's caption that's with that caption is a picture of Walt and Jesse staring dead into the camera. And then as soon as you read it, they're saying a project set in the universe. The headline, another project, another project set in the same universe as Breaking Bad is not as catchy and does not get as many clicks. It's misleading. And I've done a little bit of poking around the impression that a lot of people have. And I don't think there's anything really, I don't think there's been anything definitive. Everyone thinks it's going to be a Jesse movie, which a lot of people had curiosity about that for the people who haven't had a chance to, 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 to watch it or are still planning on. Spoiler alert. At the end of the movie, Brian Cranston's character dies. As he should have. It was definitely a death that the character earned. The Jesse character, played by Aaron Paul, escaped. He was, uh, he'd been held prisoner. He was on a, in a car just driving off and in tears of joy. And there has been so much talk about what would his character, what would the Jesse character do next? Where was his next stop? I think a lot of people are hoping that that's where the story is going to, this, this movie will go. But, we don't know that. We also don't know if this is going to be a theatrical release, if it's going to be a TV movie or anything. I mean, uh, Alex, what are your thoughts? If you had to, if you had to guess, what do you think the, what do you think this movie will be? I can see how people think it might be a Jesse thing, or at least how they're hoping it is. The, the, the caption of the, the kind of snapshot of what we know it's supposed to be about is it will quote follow the escape of a kidnapped man and his quest for freedom. First off, that could be basically kind of a a look at Jesse during his time while he is cap- held captive by the, the, the neo-Nazi gang. Or it could be following him sometime afterwards. I feel like I kind of don't want it to be about Jesse. Actually, you know what? not even kind of. I just don't. To me, that ending is sufficient of him sort of getting his freedom and running away from ever, all of this crap. If you really stop and kind of deconstruct and think about what's going to happen next in that universe right after the cops show up at that compound, Jesse's not going to really have freedom. He will probably be found at some point, whether it's a month from now, a year from now, five years from now. The only thing that's weird to me about this is if we're following the escape of a kidnapped man and his quest for freedom, I'm having troubles thinking of how that connects to the universe. If, if I, I, I don't can't think of an obvious uh, side character or anything from the TV show that it would make sense that we're following. That, that's a great point there. I mean, you take, you take out some of the characters and what's left of the universe, you know, some towns in Albuquerque. Unless the connection to the existing universe is the kidnapper and not the kidnappee. Yeah, they, they could do a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern where it turns out somebody peripherally involved. Oh, oh I kind of like that. What if uh, – because Jesse's staying in that hole in the ground in the, the neo-Nazi compound for, what, six months or a year or whatever. What if this movie's following some guy who's in another hole in the ground and just periodically he hears 
the events of the last half season of Breaking Bad happening outside of his door or something. Yeah, I, I could, you could see that. And it would be as if uh, Pulp Fiction, the sequel, was the story of the gimp. The thing is, Vince Gilligan is a daring enough writer. He's going to have a lot of leeway. If you just set something in the Breaking Bad universe, people are going to come out and see it. I mean, Better Call Saul, despite the fact that Saul was never, he was never a main character. You would never have seen this sort of Weasley lawyer who cowered at every opportunity, him being the center of his own show, but because it was had the, brace, the Breaking Bad seal of approval on it, has done well. With the pedigree that it has and the tease that is going to be involved in that universe and the idea is like, okay, just keep watch it and you'll have a chance to see Jesse and maybe Walt. I mean, people are still very excited with Better Call Saul that you see Gus and you see the twins and you see other characters here or there. People get wildly excited over that and still talk about, hey, maybe at some point over the run of the show, you will see Jess and Walt again there. So there's nothing to lose. When I, but everything I'm describing doesn't – nothing feels like a theatrical film. It all feels TV movie. I mean if it's a two-hour project, that could be, as this article is describing it, that could be a theatrical movie. That could be a TV movie. That could be a four-episode, six-episode miniseries. If we're Rosencrantz and Guildenstern covering a guy in some other hole in that same compound, I don't know that there's that much. Unless we're going to cover that guy's backstory a lot, there's only so much you can do with a guy in a hole. Kind of interesting that they're announcing off the at the offset that this is set in the same universe because I feel like the appetite for Breaking Bad stuff is so ravenous that I feel like anything Vince Gilligan's name is attached to, people are saying... Maybe it's like set in the same universe, right? Like maybe at the end of this movie or whatever, at the end of this TV show, we're going to, oh, it's Walter White. Whoa. They're cutting that one off for it even happens with saying, yeah, it's in the same universe and we'll follow a guy. But like I said, I'm hoping not Jesse because I'm, I'm fine with the ending he got. For me, Breaking Bad had one of the best endings in recent memory. And, uh, I just watched the last uh, season of House of Cards. And the season, I thought, was pretty good, but the ending was weak. Didn't tie anything up. It was the first time over the course of the season where you could tell how much they missed having Kevin Spacey's character on the show because, in my opinion, the final sequence would have been much more powerful if it would have happened between Robin Wright and Kevin Spacey as opposed to Robin Wright's character and just sort of the right-hand man of the president, it, it, it lost its power. You don't want to see anything. I, I don't want to find out that Walt made it, that he somehow survived. No, I, I was actually thinking, uh, going back to to Jessica Jones, sometimes the right way to end the story is to kill the character. For the benefit of either some other character or for the narrative arc, You know, the right way to end that season of Jessica Jones is to kill... Kilgrave, as much as I thought he was a cool character and it was fun to watch him be a complete piece of crap to everybody, that was the right way to end that season. I don't want to find out in season two or season three or season four that, oh no, he survived or oh, someone cloned him and brought him back from the dead or something like that. You know, I don't want to find out that Walt survived. I, I don't want to say he has to be punished, but he has to be punished. You know, he, he did a bad thing and you can argue the reasons that he did it, but he did a bad thing. He killed people. He 
manufactured a lot of drugs. He led, he orchestrated the deaths of a lot of people. He ruined a lot of people's lives and he deserves a degree of the karmic justice of getting killed. He, he earned his death, but he also earned the right to take some people who are worse than him out before him. So he, he got a somewhat noble death. So KJ, you're not interested in this movie at all. I mean, I'll probably see it. I, I do um, like l- some other Vince Gilligan stuff, some of his X-Files stuff. And uh, I'm kind of intrigued in where they'll go with it. There's a couple of things that I do think uh, we know about it. We know it'll probably fit into that two-hour format. So it won't be uh, a huge investment on my part to check it out. I am really curious to see if this is a film and something fresh that he had uh, sitting out there in this universe universe. Or if it's going to be the most tentative of ties, where it could be any script he had lying around that they tied into this universe uh, just for the marketing. Yeah. Or God forbid, Sneaky Pete. It's like, hey, Sneaky Pete. That's it. No, I got it. It's The show is following. Do you remember uh, Walt is at the hardware store? I think he's buying stuff to fix like the rot in his basement or something. And he sees these dudes buying what he knows to be meth cooking supplies. And then he just gives them crap about it and is just like, you don't do it all in one store like that. What the hell are you doing? Runs into them in the parking lot and then just like mean mugs them and leaves. It's following those guys. Just talking about them going straight later. Oh, it ends up being a sitcom. It's like, you know, why don't we just open up a new vape shop? <laughs> da, 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 da. Now you have to have Brian Cranston back then. Because I, I loved Malcolm in the Middle. I, I spent the first half season of Breaking Bad waiting for him to tell a joke that never happened. Well, did you see they filmed an alternate ending to Breaking Bad where it was him waking up next to Lois from uh, Malcolm in the Middle. And it turns out the show was just a dream. <laughs> no. It was awesome. It just showed him waking up. It's like, oh, honey, you just wouldn't believe it. I, I was married to this tall, beautiful, statuesque bl- a woman. And she's like, yeah, now I know it's a dream. And I was I was, I was, was cooking meth. Just, ha, you were cooking? Yeah, that's a dream. And then she's like, and I was always running around in my underwear. It's like, well, that sounds like you. Apparently, that's just Brian Cranston's thing. Being a vaguely sort of in shape guy, but not really. Yeah, he knows he doesn't have the greatest physique. So yeah, it's funny. You know, it's not funny if he's jacked. He's got an okay bod. He's got a dad bod. Best case scenario, dad bod, where he's like in pretty good shape. He looks good in a suit, but not great in tidy whities Yeah, oh yeah, I'm I'm familiar with that physique. Thank you. Yes, um, <laughs> that's what I aspire for. When the clothes are there to kind of corset your figure a little bit. Oh yeah, I, I, I rock a suit pretty well so so kj if there was a show that you would really be excited about is there a particular show that you'd be excited about some sort of continuation be it a tv movie theatrical film miniseries or like a reboot that they've done for the roseanne slash the connors is there a particular ip that you'd be interested to see get that treatment yeah i don't think i have a good answer because the answer i want to give they are they've in fact done that and that's psych uh they've already had a movie and i i've heard this plans for another Psych was one of those shows that I would watch every now and then. And I always enjoyed it when I saw it. I did see the Psych TV movie, and it seemed like everyone was having a really good time. It, you could tell that they, that cast enjoys hanging out together. They did all the greatest hits. They had all the favorite guest stars back. John Cena's there at the end of the movie, which, hey, good for them, because he's doing big movies now. I, I could stand to see, have that be something that comes back for a movie once a year. That'd be cool. Alex, what about you? Is is there a property that you would like to see get that treatment? 
again, I feel, you know, they, they are doing most of the properties I would have said that they are, they already either are doing or have done. Um, there are a couple of like comic book storylines I'd like to see them get to, you know, particular comic book arcs. There's particular Superman arcs or Batman arcs or things like that, that I'd like, yeah, I would love to see a movie of that. I mean, if it's, you know, one of those DC animated movies, I don't look at like, especially like childhood properties, things like that and say, Oh, I would totally love for that to be a movie because honestly, most kids entertainment sucks and you're just not, your palate is just not refined enough yet to realize it. I was a huge power Rangers head. When I was a kid, I watched it from the day, from the first episode that came out for seasons and seasons and seasons. And it's crap. I've watched it since then as an adult with a more refined palate and it's crap. When people say that they want like a childhood property to be revived, they really want it to feel like it did back then, which isn't possible. It's not possible for your taste to be that unrefined again. Yeah, I don't know that the show Power Rangers was ever great, but what was great was running around and pretending to be a Power Ranger. Yes, yes. It was great to have the gloves that made the noise and you could do Power Rangers fights and stuff like that. And you could have toys. But other than that, God, like every, everything I thought of as an answer for this already is a property. Every book. Oh, no. You know what? I just thought of one uh, just now because my bookshelf is standing to my left. The works of uh, Christopher Moore as an author who's written a lot of fiction, kind of aimed at sort of either like 20 20- Kind of the age range is a, it's a little older than young adult, so maybe like twenty ish year olds. All every book he write he writes, I laugh out loud reading, and I feel like they're all optioned to make movies somewhere, and none of them ever have have been a thing. So I guess that would be a property I would look for. But at the same time, there's no way it can measure up to what's in my head. You know, I I don't see a way that it can be better than what I would imagine it to be. Your imagination doesn't have budget limitations. Exactly. There's a new podcast called What Really Happened. I don't know how new it is. Um, they just finished their second season. Um, and it goes through like the real story behind pop culture or news stories. And they talked about the anatomy of a bomb, talking about John Carter. When John Carter came out, that was the most expensive movie ever made. That story needed to have a gigantic budget. That's why it took so long for the movie to be made. Because uh, it was an 80-year-old book by the time they made it. There was no way to make a less expensive version of that film and have it work even a little bit. And then they ended up making it for the $250 million, and it still didn't work. It's sort of like what you're calling out. You just, you're imagining perfect characters in your head, and it's hard to put that on the screen. I, I get what you're saying. Especially because, so think about the fact that you've got, let's, let's take an example of another property that got adapted and no one really liked it that much. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh man. Everyone has in their head when they're reading it, the perfect version of, let's say, Zaphod Beeblebrox. But the problem is that's your perfect version of Zaphod Beeblebrox. My perfect version of Zaphod Beeblebrox is different. And the problem is they're now trying to put one on screen that's some combination of the filmmaker's perfect idea and every audience member's perfect idea. And you try to please everyone, you're going to kind of please no one. Right, right. What were some of the Batman and Superman 
arcs that you would like to see? I would love to see, and I know they did a version of an adaptation of it on Batman Brave and the Bold, but I would love to see an adaptation of uh, the Emperor Joker storyline. Are you familiar with Emperor Joker? I'm not sure that I am. Okay, so, and I kind of have to go into spoiler territory on this, but even even the the name, the title of the thing kind of tells you. Imagine this was coming... You've just picked up Superman number whatever number it is, and they haven't hinted to you that this is the start of a new arc or anything. And Superman wakes up in Arkham Asylum. What? What? Why am I in jail? Superman breaks out of prison and is caught by Metropolis's greatest hero, Bizarro, and returned to prison. He does this every night. And it rains fish from the sky. And the most powerful, richest person in Metropolis is the bald billionaire, Lois Lane. What what the hell's going on? What what is this world? The reveal at the end of kind of part one is the earth is in the shape of Joker's head. And so it turns out what happened is Mixie Spitlick was bored one day of playing with Superman and decides to see what would happen if he gave the Joker 1% of his powers. And accidentally gives Joker 99% of his power. So basically Joker has God level powers and just screws with the world as he sees fit. You know, he depowers superheroes, turns Lex Luthor into a dog. Uh, He just kills Batman every day and every night and brings him back from the dead and kills him again. And it's really weird, and it it breaks the fourth wall. There's times where Joker talks directly to the reader. There's times where he talks to the writer of the comic. Um, there's times where he, you know, he makes pop culture references and it's such a weird piece that it, like, it would be impossible to truly do it justice, but I still wish someone could. It's because it's so weird and so genre breaking. Yeah, it would have to be, and DC does go sort of daring with their animated films. So maybe, maybe. Like if there was a way for the for something to physically come out of the TV for a little bit, that would be great. Like for Joker to just literally stick his head out of the TV for a second and go, hey, you should get off the couch. You're going to get bed sores. There's a lot of comic book arcs and stories that I would love to see in the films. They are, they can't be done because of reasons like that, where it's too out there and it mixes and matches heroes and villains and a studio is not going to do that in a film. I've been watching Marvel movies for 10 years and they're fantastic. and I love them. It still throws me off that they have never had anything to do with the fact that Tony Stark, Iron Man is an alcoholic in the movies. He's not, he, he drinks the Iron Man that I grew up reading. One of the constant parts of that character's arc was his battle with alcoholism. I know they can't do that in movies. If you have a two hour movie, and it's an action movie, you can't convincingly go through the arc of him battling his alcoholism. It'd be really challenging to do. In the commentary on Iron Man 2, I think, when uh, Tony kind of hits his low point in his bender, I think Favreau says, this is this is about the closest we're going to get to the demon in a bottle storyline. That one period where Iron Man, where Tony gets drunk at his house and he's using the Iron Man suit to do party tricks and like blow up pineapples or watermelons and things like that. I know they've announced that they're the Disney streaming service, basically doing miniseries with some of the, the main characters from the Marvel films that they, they've talked about. They're going to do a Winter Soldier and Falcon miniseries and one with Scarlet Witch and one with Loki. You could almost see them doing something like that. But of course, they would have to back up the Brinks truck to have Robert Downey Jr. do a six episode series where very little Iron Man and just sort of making it a weird substance abuse drama. 
which I don't think that's where the streaming service wants to go with it, but that's where something like that could conceivably happen. In the particular case of your example also, I think Robert Downey Jr.'s, I think he's over being Tony Stark by now. I, I get the vibe from every interview I've seen with him. Like, yeah, he's enjoying it and he certainly enjoys the money that he's paid. But artistically, I think he's he's done about all he feels there is to do with this character and he... I can kind of I can kind of at least put a guess together in my head about who's going to survive the next Avengers movie by looking at the interviews and seeing who is over this. Robert Downey Jr. is over this. Chris Evans is over this. Chris Hemsworth still enjoying it. He might be back. Yeah, Hemsworth's going to be back. If I get the sense from him, he's just glad they finally figured out how to make a Thor movie. Yeah, the only issue with him with them bring back Thor is I almost just wonder what do you do? By the end of Infinity War, he is capable of more or less standing toe-to-toe with Thanos when Thanos is in full god mode. Like, he could have killed Thanos at the end of that movie. There's no threat that the Avengers would face that needs Thor that wouldn't just wipe everybody else out. Thor's power level has ascended so far beyond everybody else's that it's hard to integrate him into anyone else's story. He he's sort of gotten to the point that Superman is with the Justice League, where yeah, what the hell do what the hell do we need anyone else for? The Justice League, it seems like their job, especially in the comics, I feel really bad for the writers of the comics. Is like, okay, why does he need anyone else? Apparently, we just need Batman to move the Kryptonite away. There's Kryptonite again, or they transported Superman. Uh, Superman got teleported to some far off planet, and that planet's got a red sun. All right, all right, that's fine. Now let's tell a story with everybody else. Yeah, I really liked uh, Ragnarok, but I'm not sure you can do another movie with that tone, given where they left things. He he doesn't have his home. He doesn't have his kin. He doesn't have his people. He yeah he ha- he they've taken so much from him, and I like artistically that they took so much from him. But what drives him at this point? I think that could be the interesting story, though, is seeing seeing how he deals all with that. It's just not it's not the movie that they just had. We know rage and revenge drives him right now in dealing with Thanos, but after that. Maybe the end of the next Avengers movie is Thor and Thanos going off together in exile to sort of find their purpose. You know, they've done crazier. A buddy cop movie with Thanos and... Yeah, something like these two characters who are too powerful to be part of anybody else's story and who really have nothing left to work for. Like, Like Thanos achieved his goal... And we're presuming is going to either see his dreams turn to ash or have everything undone or something in the second one. And Thor, this character who's super powerful and has like nothing to fight for, they'll just kind of, I don't know, cruise and have adventures or something or just go and meditate or something like that. The Marvel Universe is in a little bit of a behind the scenes is a little bit in chaos because of uh, James Gunn situation. And what do you do with Guardians? And part of me thinks it would be great to have uh, Taika Waititi take over Guardians, and just pull Thor into the next Guardians movie. But you're right. He's so much more powerful now. Uh, I mean, he was so much more powerful at the end of Ragnarok. And that's before he got the really, really big hammer now. None of the Guardians are that powerful, right? Like, Star-Lord's a guy. Drax is a strong guy. Gamora's a strong lady. Uh, You know, Rocket has a lot of cool technology. Mantis has some superpowers. I mean, really the only guardian who's especially like powerful relative to everyone else we've seen in the Marvel universe is Groot. I just rewatched Infinity War yesterday 
And they have the one scene where when the Guardians first meet Iron Man, Doctor Strange, and Spider-Man. And, of course, they basically their fight ends up being a stalemate. I'm looking at it, I was like, eh, that's sort of silly. And I get why they did it, because they got to have the great scene where there's a standoff and they realize they're on the same side. But it's like, you know, Star-Lord going toe-to-toe with Iron Man, especially the Iron Man by that point. Because Iron Man's sort of similar to what you're saying about Thor. By this point, he's just become so much more... Yeah, he's got like nanotech healing him at this point. A, a dumb guy with basically parlor tricks shouldn't be going, shouldn't be holding his own against Iron Man. But again, I understand why it happened. Uh, yeah, dramatically you understand why. And then at the same time, like Captain America, his power level seems to vacillate wildly. He seems to, he, now he seems to just be climbing in power. Theoretically, this is supposed to just be a really strong, really athletic guy who is now capable of at least temporarily stopping a punch from Thanos in full god mode, who is capable of beating Iron Man in a fight, the same Iron Man who is approaching the point of too powerful. You know, I grew up reading comics, and I loved... Did you guys ever read the the Marvel Universe collection? It, It was basically just a guide for all the characters in Marvel. And it'd be very specific about how fast they were, how strong they were, how powerful. There would be an index, and they would gauge how strong everyone by how many tons they could press over their head. I remember something similar, but I think it was X-Men-centric. Yeah, I had the X-Men one with like you know Wolverine's height and weight and things like that. So I knew that Spider-Man could lift 10 tons over his head, and I knew Thor could lift over 100 tons, and et cetera, et cetera. So you knew, okay, if Spider-Man got into a fight with Captain America... Spider-Man was much, much stronger than Captain America because he was listed as peak Olympic athlete strength. With the movies, they don't seem to have that sort of hard and fast rule. And again, I get why. Even in Civil War, and I like Civil War very much, but everyone was really wildly fluctuating in power levels. They also kind of retconned their way out of any inconsistencies in Civil War at the beginning of Spider-Man. And Tony says, you really think if Captain America wanted to kill you, he couldn't have killed you? They basically just implied, yeah, everyone's kind of holding back in that fight because like, they disagree with each other. And ideologically, you know, they're trying to stop the other side. But like Cap's not really trying to kill most of those people at that point in like the big airport fight. It just did strike me funny because you had one point where Spider-Man stopping the punch from Winter Soldier with the metal hand that was so amazing. And then later he couldn't quite match up with Cap. It was, again, they're writing it so it's most most compelling. Most people don't watch movies like we do. Yeah, most people aren't comparing power levels at the end of a movie. I want to give you a chance to, to plug your pluggables. Uh, Alex, what do you have going on? I mean, uh, we've already talked a little bit about Galaxy Quest Minute. Where can people find out more about that? And do you have anything else upcoming? Galaxy Quest Minute, uh, that's completed its main cinematic run. Um, if something ever comes to that Amazon series again, we'll probably be back for that. Uh, in the meantime, I've got a couple of other Movies by Minutes projects going on. Available on your podcatcher now to subscribe, Cleveland in Six, going deep into Major League, giving Major League very much the same treatment. Our teaser episode is out on the feed, and the first episode is sitting on my computer in a state of partial editing right now. If you happen to be catching this sometime in December, we uh, I will be part of Independence Day Minute, where we're looking at the action, comedy, sci-fi that all independence day you know what independence day is uh minute at a time and 
that's gonna <laughs> it's gonna be very silly and I'm gonna be doing a lot of Jeff Goldblum. Oh, you have to. You have to. Oh yeah, we, we just recorded our first episode with Goldblum in it and afterwards me and one of the other hosts talked and we were like, So do we wanna just like cut all those out and put them at the end of the show? Cause it's like it's funny, but it also completely stops the momentum dead so that I can talk about the word difficulty. Uh recommend everyone checking that out. That'll be the, the, those will be awesome. KJ, you don't have a day. Uh, you don't have a day job as a podcaster. You, you're just showing up every now and then. You have anything to plug? No, not really. I'm a I'm a different kind of nerd. I'm a I'm a programmer, so occasionally I'll blog about that or open source some of it. <laughs> Nothing in the podcast world. You do have an appearance upcoming on Flash Gordon Minute. Yeah, that should be interesting. Uh, you'll be finishing up that podcast pretty soon. And I've I've been listening to every episode without ever seeing the movie. Really weird. If uh, anyone else wants to try it, I, I highly recommend it. If you haven't seen Galaxy Quest yet, binge listen to Galaxy Quest Minute. Then see if it's what you expect. Yeah, if you don't think Breaking Bad is too slow for you, then you know try try watching a movie one minute at a time, one week at a time for months on end. myself with joy because an amazing writer who sometimes a little under the radar wrote some of my favorite stories in comics and I was lucky enough to to meet him at Keystone Comic Con and he was so gracious to offer to he he agreed to be interviewed and we're going to have a great time uh, and I'm going to butcher his name right now just to get everything started on the wrong foot but uh, Fabian Nicesia how close was I? You actually got it worse than you did the first two times you got it wrong. Duh, damn. Wow. I suck. It's so easy, too. It's just like it's spelled. Niciesa. Niciesa. Look how easy that is. Niciesa. Regardless of how bad I am at saying your name, I'm very good at reading your comics and thinking you're awesome, so I hope that offsets how much I suck with the pronunciation. No problem. I, I, for many, many years, I read the incredible Hulk also. <laughs> It was one of my favorite characters. And that guy Spitter Man, I liked him too. <laughs> Actually, that was a funny running joke all the time at the office. Like when I started at Marvel, uh, what I pronounced, what I'd grown up pronouncing improperly uh, and what I'd gotten right. So like uh, I, o- I always knew it was Submariner. But when I got to Marvel, I found that a lot of people always thought it was Submariner, like Submarine. But I'd always pronounced it properly. But the one I'd pronounced wrong was Kazar. I pronounced it Kazar my whole life as a kid. And I think when I got to Marvel, they said it's pronounced Kazar. And like I was like, oh, okay, like stuff like that. And Magneto and Magneto. I always said Magneto. And other people say Magneto because that's a real thing. 
But I always said Magneto because I was like magnets. It's always funny with the first time you see a, a cartoon or something. Uh, I remember the Spider-Man and Amazing Friends cartoon where they would sometimes you would hear these names for the first time. I did the same thing with Submariner until John Byrne did his Namor series. And he actually had a character say, hey, is this Submariner? And like spelling out like the three E's to make it phonetically. And then he corrected the character. It's like, oh, okay, now I got it. Yeah, I, got, I think I got Submariner right because when I was re- when I was only about ten years old or so, one of the one of the books that there was a few books all coming out around the same time, like All in Color for a Dime uh, came out in the season. Uh, Steranko's History of Comics and Jules Pfeiffer wrote a, a book like uh, I think it was called The Greatest Comic Book Heroes. I'd gotten a bunch of those in a f- in a couple of year span when I was around ten or eleven to learn a lot about the Golden Age and, and about older comics. And I think in one of them, they mentioned that Bill Everett had named him with the poem, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, in mind. So that's why I always pronounced it properly, because I'd read that about, about Everett's history. It, it helps to have the chief. And it's amazing what happens when you read stuff. Yeah, no kidding. I know. Yeah. And I, I, I'm, I'm very happy and, and I feel very fortunate in that way is that I, I, I became very, very fascinated by the history of comics. So by the time I was an adult out of college and I ended up getting a job at Marvel, I, I had I had a, like a real love and and knowledge and an interest and some knowledge of of the history of the media, of the industry through the 40s and 50s into the 60s i'd read all the stan's stuff son of Arjun's books and all the introductions he wrote and everything i tried to get a real understanding and grasp of it so when i finally started at marvel and got to work with with some of the like titans of, of the silver age who who lived through all of those periods it, it really helped add to my knowledge because i started to get it firsthand from the people who who lived it you you can tell the writers and artists who were fans growing up, it's, I, and I imagine it's, getting into comics is not the easiest thing if you're not a fan. But I'm sure there's people who are just epically talented and sort of almost fall into it. Or Yeah, there are. And there are a lot of people who come from other fields and, and may have liked comics, but it wasn't quite the same emotional passion to them. I, I'm, I'm very fortunate also in the regard that I, I, I was very, very passionate about comics since I was a kid, and I was very, very knowledgeable and passionate about the history and the continuity of both companies, Marvel and DC, but I came into it from a business perspective more than anything. I mean, I I got hired to work at Marvel a couple of years out of college and, and started in the manufacturing department, then moved over to the promotions department. So even though I was working in comics and, and, and helping to sell comics, which was fantastic, I still had to think of it from, from a professional standpoint as a sales advertising marketing job because that was what I had to do. So it wasn't until I was writing so much more and editing that, that it, became, it became substantially more about the characters and the comics themselves but before that, a lot of it was, you know, retail programs for the direct market and, and creating flyers to help them create a co-op program to get your own cash register in, in the direct market stores. Because when I started at Marvel, uh, just about half of the, the comic book shops back then in 85, 86 still were working out of cigar boxes. They didn't even have cash registers. It was good for me to have a, a business hat that I had to put on on a daily basis because it helped me look at the industry from a, from several different angles instead of just 
fanboy writer. I remember that era, the mid to late 80s, when the comic shops were so much different, where it would just be, sometimes it would just be a guy who was renting out half of like an empty bookstore or back of a pharmacy or something. And he would only, yeah, there was a lot of that. Um, but, but, you know, it was a time when the whole industry was really growing up and, and the direct market at that point was about eight, nine years old. Um, I think in 85, when I started 86, when I really started doing advertising work and they were, they'd reached adolescence, the direct market, and they were ready to start to grow up. They really were because the, the many of the store owners had become much, much more professional. It was becoming much more of a business um, in a positive way, not a negative way. So once they began to understand some of the programs that Marvel and DC were trying to do to help make everyone a better business, uh, once they stopped kind of being afraid of it, because quite frankly, they, there was a lot of retailers that were afraid of things like a cash register in their store. They thought that if Marvel gave them a cash register uh, under a co-op program where they all they had they had to pay for half of it, and that was in credit for future purchases of Marvel comics. In essence, they were getting a free cash register. Marvel was upfront paying half of it. They didn't want to get cash registers, a lot of them, in their stores because they thought it was going to be Marvel's way of manipulating their sales. And I, I was in the room when they were saying stuff like, I sell a Batman and then you're going to have the computer registered as a Spider-Man. I'm, we're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> But like I remember after meetings like that, I like I'm I'm still learning. I'm still young there, and like Carol Kayla, she was the head of direct market. Afterwards, she's like the height of patience and talking to everybody. And then afterwards, it would just be a few of us, and she'd just be like, "These idiots! Come on, we're trying so hard. I wish that they, some of the and so many of them are so good, but there's always those two or three in every room that you want to throttle. <laughs> and it and it was it was the two or three in every room. So if you figure there's four thousand stores or five thousand stores back then, that that twenty thirty percent of that is still going to be close to a thousand or more people. So, so it was a lot of having to deal with that. And we did a lot of ads, co-op ads for them for news, for use in newspapers and stuff. We did, we did promotional uh, bags that they could put the comics in. Um, I had to do those. I had, I did all the promo posters that Marvel did from like 86 through 91 or so. So things like the fall of the mutants poster and the acts of vengeance poster, all of that stuff was, was, was stuff that was my responsibility. And, and we were selling more and more on a regular basis. So for me, it was a great, great entry into the industry. When you got that entry, was was there a plan at some point? It's like, oh, this is great and love working for the company and could do so much cool stuff, but you really wanted to, to, to write? Yeah, yeah. I always wanted to write since I was a kid. I wanted to write since I was around 10, 11 years old. Um, I just, I, I, when I was a teenager, I remember distinctly the moment I'm reading a Stephen King book and I looked at the back cover and Stephen King looked old. He looked like he was in his late 30s. So, so I said, okay, clearly you can't be a writer when you're a kid. You really got to get some experience before you can become Stephen King. Okay, so let me get experience. Let me get a job and let me get experience through that job that lets me become a writer. So I got a job out of college and for, I tried to get a job at Marvel in DC. I interviewed at both places, but I didn't get either job. Uh, justifiably so. They were they were hiring for a, a level higher than I was ready for. But I got a job at Berkeley Publishing, which was a paperback book publisher. And I would have been perfectly happy being there because it was a really good company with good people. Um, and I would have started to try to write novels for some of their book series that they did. They published monthly book series, Westerns and spy stuff. And they used multiple artists under a, a main pseudonym. 
and I could have sold a novel that way and gotten practice that way and tried to improve as a prose writer. And then eventually, if I'm good enough, I, I, I've made friends with the editors and I can show them my idea for a book and maybe they want to buy it and there I go. But I ended up finding out about a job opportunity at Marvel in 85 and, and I went and interviewed and I got it. And it wasn't a kind of a job I wanted to do, but I wanted to get my foot in the door at Marvel. So uh, I left I left Berkeley Publishing to go to Marvel as ma- as a manu- assistant in the manufacturing department. And then four months later, they the guy who got hired instead of me two years earlier when we interviewed for the for, when I interviewed for that job at Marvel out of college, the guy who got hired instead of me, Steve Saffle, was looking for an assistant, and he hired me. And when he hired me, he didn't know that they were also hiring someone above him to be like a, a director of a department. So all of a sudden we had a little promotion publicity department. And, and within a year of being like the general go for flunky assistant guy, the boss, Mark Erickson, separated the responsibilities and named me advertising manager. And he named Steve uh, promotions manager. Um, so Steve had all the press stuff to do, all the all the conventions to do, and a whole bunch of other stuff with with the with stores and things like that. And I had to do all the advertising, house ads, posters, giveaways at conventions, co-op ads, all that stuff. So we each did our jobs, and we had our own little department. And I always wanted to write, but I was going to wait. I was going to be patient, uh, which is not something I normally am. But I, I I already knew and saw that it probably wouldn't be the smartest thing in the world to try to sell my story my first week on the job <laughs> because <laughs> lots and lots of people who try to do that, believe it or not, they're just clueless. They drop their magnum opus on an editor's desk one week into their job, into the job. It's like, and in chapter 12, Aunt May dies and all this stupid, all the dumb things that you, you, you should know not to do. People do routinely. And, and I just made a decision. I'm not going to be that idiot. I'm, I'm going to be smart. So I just bided my time and I learned and I started to see who bought, who bought more stories from new talent, who needed stories more often than not because of scheduling concerns or whatever. And my first sale was actually to, um, Jim Owsley, uh, who writes under the name Christopher Priest, he was the Spider-Man editor and I sold him a Spider-Man inventory story and it never got drawn. And Jim got fired, and the new editor, Jim Salakrup, didn't like the story, so I got a kill fee for it. Um, so my first story could have been Spider- a Spider-Man story, but it never happened. And, and my, first, my first sale ended up being Cyforce for New Universe. Once again, uh, editors desperate for work because the schedules were such an absolute disaster area, and a lot of proven, experienced talent didn't want to work on those books because of the, the way they'd been put together and the, the stigma that was attached to them already. But for a, a newcomer, a young guy like me, perfect opportunity. It's a no-lose situation to, to write as many issues of a book like that as I can because people, people aren't paying attention. And if they do pay attention, it's probably going to be for the right reasons because it's better than they expected it was going to be. So I sold my first inventory story to Cyforce, to Bob Budiansky, Cyforce, and then I sold another one really quickly to Bob Harris for code name Spitfire. Then I sold another inventory story for Cyforce. So I ended up having Cyforce issues 9 and 13. And then when Shooter reduced the line from eight titles to four titles, reassigned all four titles to one editor, Howard Mackey, Shooter named me the monthly writer of the book. No, Howard had no say in the matter. So that could have been really dangerous and dicey, but the gods smiled upon me in a way because Shooter got fired before our first issues 
He went to print as the monthly writer. Howard had the option to get rid of me because it kind of had the stigma of also all of a sudden being Shooter's golden boy. But Howard decided to give it a shot and see see what I could do. And it ended up working out because both of us were learning on the job and both of us were, were getting to know each other. And when we became really good friends at the same time as I was producing the book for him. So I got a monthly book really fast. And part of that's talent, I think. but And part of that's hard work. A lot of it was just luck. And, and and then I wrote, so I wrote Cyforce for 16 issues uh, until it got canceled with issue 32. I, I like those new universe series. And I, I was just at the right age and, and I thought Starbrand was a great character. That's a character that still, in one form or another, still pops up every now and then. Yeah, I saw that they brought a whole bunch of new universe concepts into the main universe. Uh, outside of seeing some of those names appear in Avengers, though, it, none of it really struck me as what the original was. No, it's definitely people, and you see it all the time, people who grew up reading stuff, and then it's like, you know what I would do? And it's sort of what you were alluding to, where people pitching too quick and it's like hey i, I want to take over spider-man for my first job and kill off aunt may and whatever I, i'm sure it's just the thing of people's like hey the star brand is a cool visual and a neat idea but i'm going to do it completely different which is great oh it's i got no problem with that when it's been a 10 a 10 year like fallow period or longer i got no problem with that i, I have a problem when someone takes over a monthly book and decides they're going to remake everything and i'm you know i have a problem with uh fight bolts replacing thunderbolts you know what i mean <laughs> i have a i have a problem even with what warren ellis did with thunderbolts for for as good as it was and as interesting as it was it, it was just a, a complete decimation of the the concept that kurt had come up with so so i would have preferred seeing warren ellis write a completely different book that wasn't called thunderbolts but still had the same exact team and characters in it so so mm-hmm. i don't have as much of a problem with them taking the name star brand it's really at that point it's just a trademark that they're that they're looking to protect as much as anything that's why oftentimes like every 10 years you'll see characters pop up with either returning characters or new or new characters using old names oftentimes that's for trademark protections as much as anything i know that's a big reason why there's been six different captain marvels yep including the the one i wrote you know Janice vell was it was as much a trademark protection as anything else it seems like a strength of yours is, and you, you you said how you have this passion for for comics and you knowing the the history. You've always done such a great job of taking an existing character, taking over a comic, and it doesn't feel like it's a complete reimagining or throwing out everything from the past. But you take it, you move it forward, you put your own spin on it, and you sort of adjust and improve rather than destroy and rebuild. I've always tried to be that kind of writer because as a reader, I've always preferred an evolution of a book rather than a reconceptualization of a book. If it's a book I'm reading regularly, I don't necessarily want it to be reconceptualized. I I, I want it to be revised or, or like I said, a, an evolutionary process, not a revolutionary process. So I, as a reader of a monthly book, I wouldn't want to see absurdly drastic changes happen more often than not if, if it was a book that i wanted those kinds of changes chances are pretty good i wouldn't even be reading the book you know i would have quit it so, so so i never was the writer who took over and changed everything or disrespected all the storylines that had come before or the continuity that had come before i, I really do prefer working with, with what i have and 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 trying to 
to do to do the, the things they were doing right and keep doing them and anything that I didn't think they were doing as well try to try to focus on that and improve it something like thunderbolts was the for me the best example ever because I took over that book and for like almost 6 months after I took over we were still getting mail letters saying uh, dear kurt and mark <laughs> to mark bagley <laughs> so the letter writers for six months hadn't even realized that kurt wasn't writing the book anymore i loved thunderbolts that was a great series it was a it was a bit just a bit ahead of its time the themes were a little more adult the take on the the villains becoming heroes and but still sort of being anti-heroes and not playing by the same rules the language and some of the behavior of the characters you know it wasn't like a max title it wasn't like what they did with punisher but no not at all no No, it was a very solidly mainstream marvel universe title it just happened because it dealt with characters who were so conflicted and so contradictory you could you could play with more questionable themes and more questionable morality than you might in Avengers or Fantastic Four or something like that. But it was most certainly and totally and clearly a a mainstream Marvel Universe comic. Its characters just kind of demanded that you, you, you take more risks with them. And that made it a lot of fun to write. And I loved Hawkeye with the Thunderbolts. And that was a neat thing, getting him away from the Avengers and almost being like Captain America's sidekick or just the jerk on the team and examining him as a leader and but still and hawkeye's a fun character the yeah hawkeye's one of my favorite characters growing up by far he was always one of my favorite characters in the avengers um and and i knew i knew that hawkeye was going to come into that book i think before kurt even brought him into the book i expected it was going to happen and as a just as a reader a casual reader because i was working at a claim at the time that thunderbolt started as a casual reader, I had a feeling it was going to happen because before I had left editorial at Marvel, Kurt had pitched a book called Hawkeye. I think it was called Hawkeye Hit Squad or something like that. And it, and Hit, Hit stood for Heroes in Training. And it was going to be Hawkeye leading a team of villains who he was going to help try to reform. So when he evolved that into Thunderbolts and Zemo and all the Heroes Return stuff, which was actually a fantastic way, clearly, to launch a title, it was no surprise at all to me when when the Dreadnought mask came off and there was Hawkeye, because it was, in essence, the idea that Kurt had had a few years earlier and, and, and now had a better platform through which to tell those stories. And I was thrilled when I got to when I was offered the book monthly. I was really happy and excited about it because I enjoyed the book so much as a as a reader, and I, I loved working with Mark Bagley so much uh, that that it was a pleasure to get to work with him again. I am a big Mark Bagley fan. He doesn't always get the love he deserves. I think it's improved over the last few years. I think it improved after his run on Ultimate Spider-Man. I think he got a lot more respect because he was working with a writer of Bendis's caliber who attracted a slightly non-traditional superhero reader Bendis does or did. The fact that Mark was working with him for so long and doing such a good job telling those stories, I think it brought Mark a little more respect than he had been getting. Uh, the truth of the matter is he's, he's, he's a writer's dream because he's so absurdly professional. He tells his stories so well and he has so much fun on the page that as a writer – Everything is always there, always, and and it makes it so easy to to, to script 
off of his pencils. So, so writers always loved working with him. Editors almost always loved working with him. Uh, but, but his, his style is, 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 I mean, his style's a, a little bit like, it's almost like a cross between John Buscema and Gil Kane in a way. And, and, and it's very, very solidly, strongly mainstream. It's not trying to be fancy. It's not trying to do bells and whistles or tricks. It's, it's not photorealistic and, in the late nineties, photorealistic styles all became the vogue and, and he's not drawing that way. It's understandable why he wouldn't be considered, he wouldn't be what you would consider a quote unquote fan favorite in that regard. But there's not many readers who read the books he does on a monthly basis who don't really enjoy and appreciate the work he does. I just remember sort of having an argument with a friend of mine who was a big fan of, uh, Travis Charest. Uh huh. Amazing artist. Fantastic artist. The argument I made is like, okay, for the last 12 months, Mark Bagley has put out 12 issues of a comic. At least. In the last 12 months, Travis Charis has maybe drawn a page or two that we might see in another year and a half. At and- most. <laughs> yeah. Look, it's, it's, a, it's a silly argument because it, it's two different kinds of art. Mark, Mark produces work on the schedule that is required of the work he is being asked to produce. An artist like Travis doesn't. Travis is a phenomenal artist, but you're not going to offer him a monthly comic book because he's not going to produce a monthly comic book. So it's comparing apples and oranges. You know what I mean? They're both fruits. They're both artists, but they're not the same. They're not the same kind of fruit and you don't have them for the same kind of reason or in the same kind of way. It's silly to, to make comparisons of that nature. You compare Mark to Sal Buscema. You compare <laughs> you compare Mark to you know I don't. There's nobody who draws a monthly book anymore because nobody can. These these poor guys have been crushed by the demands of the industry now in terms of detailing and excessive realism and all this other crap. You know any of the monthly artists from the '90s or the early aughts. You, you compare Mark to those guys, but you don't compare Mark to a guy who produces two special projects a year and they're going to be beautiful gorgeous pieces of work but he's not he's not a regular artist I don't compare mark to jay lee right right it just seems like a bit of a moot point different artists have different strengths and mark bagley he, he was just brilliant at it and same thing with um you know john romita jr was the same way like, yeah just, that's a great comparison exactly jr is a great comparison to someone like mark you wouldn't really compare jr to to travis you know what i mean no, no, definitely. Or to David Mack or something like that. And, and I always have a real special place in my heart for... I grew up on John Byrne and, you know, John Romita, John Romita Jr. These It was always so comforting that you knew 30 days later the next issue would be out and it would be of the same quality and the same artists and that consistency. And that's one of the things I loved about... Uh, there were so many things I liked about the Thunderbolts. One was, it was great. You had that Mark Bagley art and... The more the the half shade, more, uh, more adult storytelling. The characters that moved. I mean, you know, there was a real arc to everyone. I, I, and I read Fight Bolts. That was that would have been fine if it had been another series. Oh, I didn't read Fight Bolts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that ain't happening. No. <laughs> you have a lot of big checks on your your resume, and uh, we'll 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 talk Deadpool a little later. A lot of big checks from my resume too. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to talk about uh, some. Just awesome stories and little things that you've done that, may, that again, probably not the biggest, the things people most know you for, but some stories that I really liked. Uh, and one was, I think it was just a little one-shot or fill-in you did of Daredevil. Oh, the Bengal story. 
the Bengals story. I love that so much. It's a lot of people who really enjoyed that single issue as much, I guess, because they were pleasantly surprised by an inventory story that broke up a great run that, it, you know, Anacinthe and JR were doing and, and it didn't discuss them. <laughs> so the story gets a lot more credit from the regular monthly Daredevil readers because they didn't hate the fact that their regular, their regular storyline got interrupted for a month oftentimes with inventory stories you're in a no-win situation but i always felt like with inventory stories you're in a no-lose situation because if you do a bad story it's what they expect and they're not going to really remember it but if you do a good story it's not what they expect and they are going to remember it and, and to me the bengal story was always that the bengal bengal was a character i'd had since high school he actually appeared in print almost exactly the way I originally drew and designed him. Ron Lim got my sketch and said, oh, no, this is fine. This is good. I'm just going to do a little this, that here with the leggings and okay. And that was it. And Ron, it was a play. It was a dream in a way to see a character you created in high school appear like that. The Bengal was always intended to be a character for a ragman pitch to DC. And if you know ragman at all, Rory Reagan was in the Vietnam War. So this was going to have stuff to do with Rory. Reagan, things that happened in the war coming back to haunt him. And when I decided that I was going to use it for Marvel, all I did is go through the Marvel Universe handbook and figure out what other characters had Vietnam era ties. And Daredevil, I knew did because that one issue with Willie Lincoln had been reprinted in Son of Arjun's trade paperback. I never bought Daredevil regularly. I had very few sporadic issues of the book here and there of Daredevil. The only way I knew of that Willie Lincoln story was because I had the Son of Arjun's trade paperback that came out in the 70s. I still have it, actually. This is it. It's on my shelf in my office right now. And I knew that Willie Lincoln was the hook that I can use for a having Bengal in the story. And the goal all along, quite honestly, I wanted to do the first, for the first time ever, create enough stories through inventory stories that I could have a Bengal trade paperback. And I almost came through with it. I just was short by a couple. But I always thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if I do six different stories for six different comics, all of which involve this character, the Bengal, and I'm telling an entire story in bits and pieces, and there's an actual resolution to it at the end. And I got to everything except the resolution because I was never able to do the roadie chapter, which would have been like a resolution of the whole thing. And that would have been Bengal, the Bengal story. And, and the character never needed to appear ever again in Marvel Comics because his story would have had a beginning, middle, and end to it. I, I actually used the Bengal a few more times in a few other stories, all of which continued to advance that whole get revenge on on the, the, the platoon that, that hurt his village thing. Well, I remember there was a fantastic crossover with New Warriors and Punisher. I did I did a Red Wolf story where Bengal appeared in it, and that was in Marvel Comics Presents. I, I remember that well. That actually brings me to something. It ties back to that issue, Daredevil, where it was Ron Lim drawing in a way that I wasn't used to him drawing, because when I thought of Ron Lim, I, I thought of him doing Silver Surfer. Oh, this is all before Silver Surfer, though. He may have still been drawing Psy Force when he did that, that Daredevil story. I, I got to look at the dates again. I, he left Psy Force to do Silver Surfer, but he drew Psy Force up through issue 22 or 23, I think. And then he left to do Silver Surfer. I just don't know when the Bengal story was in that chronology. It was just so fun to see uh, a fight sequence like that from him. And Ronlin, I thought, a sort of underrated uh, artist. He did some great work filling in on uh, the the Infinity Gauntlet stuff. Mm -hmm. 
how much of the fight choreography for that, how much of that as a writer do you like piece out? It's like, hey, in panel one, he punches him, and panel three, there's a kick. No, no, I don't. Back then, especially, it was plot first, so a lot of those visuals were usually pretty loose. If there were a couple things I wanted to specify in the fight scene because I wanted them to use something or do something that may may come back again later in the issue or whatever, or or have a resolution that's based on something that was set up earlier in the issue, then I'll I'll specify it. But otherwise, you usually plotted your action pages in a way that allowed the artist to really determine and dictate how they visually wanted to tell that that part of the story, which I, I also... I'm a big proponent of plot first Marvel method over full scripts in a 30 year career. I basically split half and half like 15 or more years. Yeah. About 15 years plot first and 15 years full script. It's just, and so I can, I can speak with some experience to both that my personal preference remains plot first because I really prefer the artist breathe life to the story. And then I, I will script to the visual pacing and the flow that they determined worked best. If I was good enough to be an artist, then I guess I would be an artist, wouldn't I? And a lot of the writers are not good enough to be artists, so why should they be the ones determining the totality of the visual presentation of a comic book? Yeah, it's sort of handcuffing your artists a lot of times, I would imagine. I believe so, yeah. And I think the stories read that way now, too. There's so much standing around talking there's people who talk about the fight rather than ever showing the fight. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's, it's a little crazy. My first comic that I started reading was uh, Spider-Man. It was during the, uh, when Ron Friends was drawing it. Okay. Friends was so good at, at drawing Spider-Man in action. And they always made sure to have that scene at the beginning or the end of the comic where in, you, some, often it had nothing to do with the plot. It was just a chance to show Spider-Man beating up bad guys. They were robbing a bank or whatever. And it helped to ha- always have that like satisfying bit of action at the beginning or end. So even if it was an issue where there's just a lot of talking between Peter and Mary Jane, if you're 8 or 10 years old, eh, that's fine as long as you get to see Spider-Man punch somebody at the beginning or end. As Tom DeFalco said, and we always laughed, but but we understood the spirit of what he said, you, every comic should be accessible to someone ages 8 to 80. <laughs> so you had to keep in mind that an 8-year-old or an 80-year-old could be reading your comic. And that led to, that, it led to, to a certain middle-of-the-road approach to a lot of things, but I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, we've spent so much time in our industry creating superhero comics for arrested adolescent 40-year-old man-boys that that we've really, really lost the spark and sense of fun and adventure the comics used to have. The, the whole nihilistic 90s really, really took us down the wrong path because everyone who got into the industry in the 90s and early aughts were byproducts of Miller and Moore, and they all learned the wrong lessons out of Miller and Moore. Uh, Miller and Moore's deconstruction is approach to superheroes comics was done basically in in elseworlds and what ifs they weren't done as the status quo they were done to show you what could be different about a character outside of the status quo and, and all the mainstream marvel and dc writers decided to turn it into the status quo and i think it hurt it hurt superhero comics tremendously i just mentioned peter and mary jane An- another story that you wrote uh, that I really enjoyed. You wrote 
Peter Parker's last adventure at Spider-Man. Yeah, it was his last adventure until three weeks before the last issue came out when he was already having more adventures. <laughs> what a disaster area. I, I really enjoyed getting to write Peter and Mary Jane as a married couple. I also think I did it pretty well. I love working with Derek and, and will work with Derek Robertson anywhere, anytime, anyhow, because I love working with him. The process of creating that book, especially the last issue, was very problematic because editorial was completely screwed up by then. They didn't know what the hell they were doing. Too many fingers in the pie, too many disagreeing opinions. The, there was a leadership vacuum at Marvel Editorial at that point because the higher-ups upstairs wanted there to be a leadership vacuum in Editorial, quite frankly. And, and and as a result, that whole series became a little bittersweet because the last issue was so truncated and screwed around with. I think Glenn Greenberg, who was the assistant editor back then, wrote a whole series of blogs about a lot of stuff he relayed a lot of information about that time in the Spider Office and even about the the Final Adventure miniseries, uh, much of which I didn't even remember or know when he wrote it all up. It, it, it was a challenging time. So, so writing Peter and Mary Jane was a lot of fun. Changing the status quo, moving them out to Portland, all of that was fun. But all the other stuff that was going on around the storyline at that time wasn't as much fun. I really love that, and I think by the by the time you're right, by the time you got to the final issue, the writing was on the wall that the Ben Riley experiment wasn't going well. But you showed such a wonderful understanding of what made Spider-Man tick and work. And what where I always loved my favorite Spider-Man's stories were: here's a guy who has some great powers and great abilities, but they're never quite enough. Whatever whatever bad guy he's fighting is not enough, and he has to show these more clever. And it's not a Reed Richards super genius where he makes it, you know, a MacGuffin invention that magically saves a day. It was him sort of using a little more practical science as well as his powers and abilities combined. The whole package is what helps him save the day. You nailed that with the story. And it was him losing his powers and walking off into the sunset, but still showing that there was a hero within him. And it just showed such a wonderful understanding of the character and so many things that make Peter Parker tick. And not everyone has that. Oh, I appreciate it. I Look, I mean, Spider-Man was like the first Marvel comics that I read. Uh, Spider-Man Fantastic Four were the first books my brother and I got when we started getting any Marvel comics. Uh, a friend of my brother's in elementary school saw that my brother was getting Batmans and Supermans because that's what we recognized from Argentina when we were here from the TV shows that were running. In Argentina, when, before we came here, the Batman 40s serial and the Superman 50s TV show were running on television. So my brother recognized both characters, more than me because I was only four, recognized both characters when we came here. So I asked my parents if he could buy some comics and, and it was Batman and Superman. But a friend of my brother's at school said, you don't want to be reading those. You want to be reading these cool ones. And what do you think those were? <laughs> it was it was Spider-Man Fantastic Four. So, so Spider-Man was like the first Marvel comic character I was exposed to and, and always loved Spider-Man, always. And I, I've written, gotten to write them a few times, and every single time I've written them, I've not only enjoyed it tremendously, but I also think I've done a good job with him. I, I think I do understand the character pretty well. I, I think I do have a simpatico voice 
for Peter. So, so I, I've enjoyed the chances I've gotten to write him, which has been several times, quite honestly, either one shot issues or inventory stories from way back in the day. I did two web of Spider-Man inventory stories. I wrote them in new warriors. I wrote them in the, the final adventures. I wrote them in an annual. I wrote them in a Spider-Man unlimited. I then got to do the mini series with Steve Rood in the early aughts, which was fantastic to get to do. So, so I've gotten to write them a lot. I, I wish I could have had a nice one or two year, two, two to three year run on Spider-Man. I think I, I would have really enjoyed that too. There was a time when there was a possibility that could have happened, but I kind of screwed it up quite honestly, because I was a little arrogant about it. If it wasn't going to be the amazing title, I didn't want to do it at that time. In hindsight, I really regretted it because quite frankly, I would have enjoyed the hell out of writing three years of web of Spider-Man or Peter Parker, spectacular Spider-Man or whatever. It shouldn't have needed to be amazing Spider-Man. That's interesting because Amazing, of course, that's in general always been the, the sort of the flagship for Spider-Man. Do you think you can have more fun with the, sort of the the secondary titles? Probably, yeah, yeah, less pressure. But quite frankly, when very kind of like loose dancing was going on about me possibly writing one of the three books, and at the time I was writing X-Men and X-Force and all that stuff, and I said, if I'm going to do it, it's got to be Amazing because I want to be writing the flagship title. Sales were almost double that of Web and, and, and Spectacular. And at the time, I understand why I said that. It was arrogance, like I said, but it was also, in a way, career protection. If I'm going to be the big man, holy crap, wouldn't it be amazing if I'm writing your number one selling comic, X-Men, and your flagship character monthly, amazing Spider-Man. So I was looking to, to put a shiny metal on my chest at the same time. It wasn't until five, ten years later where I thought, yeah, that was stupid, man. It would have been so much fun to work on web or it would have been so much fun to work on spec. It, it wouldn't have made a difference what the title was. You know what I mean? It, but that, that that's the hindsight kind of thing where you look back on it and go, ah, I'm older now and, and I don't care about that stuff as much now. And it, it would have been fun to do. But I get why I, I felt the way I felt at the time. In retrospect, where do you have more fun? Writing you know, big flagship titles like X-Men, you know, X-Force, which were huge sellers, and or... One series that I really liked, I love that you did, and it was one that surprised me how much I liked it. Like when you write Nomad, which was not a top tier character. Do you have a, like a preference in, in those regards? Philosophically, I much prefer to write the books that no one at Marvel is paying attention to. Economically, I much rather write the higher selling books. I at the, at a certain time in my career, I was having my cake and eating it too because I was writing Marvel's number one selling. I was writing three titles in Marvel's top 10, selling 1.4 million comics a month, I, the books I was writing. I, I wrote a family of titles, the New Warriors family, that were middle-tier books. They were not, they were not top 10, but they were, they were all top 50 or 40. And then I was writing one of Marvel's second or third lowest-selling books, and that was Nomad. <laughs> so it was actually kind of fun to have that range at the same time. And, and Nomad was always purposefully intended to be a book that I could experiment in, that I could do stories that mainstream Marvel books wouldn't do, that I, I would push the envelope a bit. For a code-approved book, I think I got away with a hell of a lot of stuff other Marvel books weren't even trying to get away with back then. It also presented a lot of problems because a lot of the things I was trying to do were, were controversial internally and, and, and caused some headaches for the editor and caused some headaches for me. And, and quite frankly, I played the I'm also writing these three top 10 selling books for you at the same time card a few times to try to get what I wanted. 
things like the cross-dressing issue, the L.A. riot issue, the AIDS, HIV stuff, a, a whole bunch of other stuff. It was a little, a little challenging to get Marvel to agree to do it. Because I remember picking that up, because I always liked the Nomad character, where I realized how it was a bit different. I think it was the fourth issue. There's finally a confrontation between Nomad and Captain America. They fight. Captain America, being Captain America, of course, is handily winning the fight, but then Nomad just kicks him between the legs. And that was something that just superheroes didn't do. And that's not really the, 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 the pushing of the envelope that you're really talking about there. But it was one of the things that said, it's like, oh, and I had been enjoying it. And it seemed different, aside from the fact that he was going all over the country. And it wasn't just a character based in New York. But then he fights dirty and is more than happy to. And that's what separates him. That's how he's able to be on equal footing with a character like Captain America. is because he fights in a way that... Captain America or Spider-Man or someone wouldn't be willing to. And I just really love that miniseries. And then the, the series that followed, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And I think it really showed that you were having fun or experimenting and doing things that were different. It wasn't necessarily having fun because, quite frankly, oftentimes it was very, very frustrating to write that book. But but it was certainly the title I, I was able to. I was able to explore different aspects of, of my writing and myself um, and my views and, and trying to do something a little different for Marvel. I always thought Marvel should have a, a, a mature reader's line for its superhero books. I advocated and fought for that even back then, that they should have a, a line of direct-only books that, that, were, that were older skewing and didn't have code approval on them and all of this crap. And those were discussions that we had internally all the time. And fans may not realize it. The comic book press rarely realizes it. But it, it wasn't stuff that wasn't discussed, all the different possibilities or options for what we could do and how we should do it. And yes, we should have a lot of, quote-unquote, safe mainstream titles. Yes, we should have a lot of young all ages stuff, but we also should have older skewing stuff and the epic line isn't really working for that. So why don't we have older skewing Marvel stuff? I think that they tried to do it to the extent they were capable of back then with things like the Midnight Suns line and and me trying to edit the Hellstorm book and things like that. It just they just were never able to to dive into the pool. They always dipped their toe into the pool and I was always saying you gotta dive. Is there a run? Now, you've had your famous runs, uh, Deadpool and Cable and your X-Men runs. Is there a lesser known, and it could be just something simple as an issue, but a run of a comic that you, you really felt you like you were clicking on all cylinders and it didn't get quite the readership that you thought it deserved? A, a particular comic that you can think of is like, oh, I, I wish more people had seen this, this Teen Titans that I did or this Batwing or... I, I think I feel that way probably about the first year of the Gambit monthly that I did with Steve Scrooge. I think we had a really fun one-year run, and I, I wish more people had given it a look at the time. I probably feel that way about you know, my, my Red Robin and Robin work. I, I wish more people had read the Red Robin uh, one-year run I did before I got New 52'd uh, with Marcus Toe because Marcus is a super, super artist, and I thought we were we were doing some pretty fun, good stuff with Tim Drake. And, and, and regular Tim Drake readers all really, really are very, very positive with me about that run. They're really positive with me about my, my last nine issues of, of the Robin Monthly uh, before the, we canceled it to, to launch Red Robin. 
and they're really positive about the one year I had. But I wish more people had read it. I wish it had been a book that others had given a look to. I wish it was a book that DC had paid any attention to, but because DC doesn't pay as much attention to the sidekick characters as they probably should. Tim Drake is such a great character. Yeah, Tim Drake's a great character. I, I love Tim Drake. I think Marv Wolfman and Chuck Dixon did a phenomenal job with that character. Probably my favorite Robin. I, I love Dick Grayson, but I like him better as Nightwing. Yeah, well, every, anybody who grew up reading Robin probably likes him better. Reading Dick Grayson's Robin probably likes him better as Nightwing because that means he grew up with you. You you and him grew up and both of you matured and got older and, and, and became adults. You know what I mean? And that's why you like seeing... I, I'm Dick Grayson's my favorite character in comics since 1967 because that's the Batman TV show I saw when I was five, six years old. And I couldn't be... I couldn't be Batman, but I thought I could be Robin, so he was automatically my favorite hero. And he's always been my favorite comic book character. And I had no problems whatsoever with him becoming Nightwing. I had zero issues about that when Marvin George did that in Teen Titans. I thought it was a completely logical, smart evolution of the character. He couldn't be Robin forever because he was growing up, and I was totally good with that. And and becoming having Tim Drake become Robin, uh, although the Jason Todd stuff was all full of hiccups, by the time they got to Tim Drake, I thought they got it right. And I thought they created a really interesting Robin who was different than Dick Grayson in a positive way, didn't demean or diminish Dick Grayson as Robin, uh, and, and was able to stand on his own two feet as his own character, considering the fact that Tim Drake had a 183-issue run on a monthly Robin book should tell you all you need to know about the strength of that character. I remember the first Robin miniseries and how damn good that was. Yeah, Tom, that was Tom Lyle and Chuck, right? Yeah. It, it was fantastic. And it's like, oh, this is a great character. And Oh, well, for crying out loud, come on. The monthly book launched with Chuck and Tom Grummet on the art. I mean, geez. I'm, I'm, that, that, the character was just blessed with excellent creative talent all along at the beginning. So it was just, it was really, really good stuff. Now that actually brings us into the present because... Uh, oh, oh man, what a segue. What a segue, because you are working on Nightwing. I am out of the blue, unexpectedly asked to join Scott and script Nightwing. In the middle, by the way, of a ridiculously controversial story that half his readers are going to hate you for. And, oh, by the way, did we remember to mention that it's bi-weekly? Why are we doing this bi-weekly? I don't know, but we are. So every issue is absurdly under the gun with multiple artists drawing each issue. So yeah, let's do that, Fabe. Why not? You've only been doing this for 30 years. Why not do that? Uh, uh, so you, but, you, but you get to work with your favorite character. That's something. <laughs> I sort of get to work with my favorite character because he's not Dick Grayson. He is Rick Grayson, and there is a difference. Catch everyone up if you can. Dick Grayson got shot in the head by KGB Beast. He wakes up in issue 50 of Nightwing, and he has no real memories of the last 15 years of his life. Guess what that means roughly in, in DC New 52 slash Rebirth timeline? That means he remembers nothing about being the ward of Bruce Wayne or Robin or Nightwing, or the Teen Titans, or Barbara Gordon, or Alfred, or Batman, or nothing. By the time he, we see him already, it's been a few months, he's been out of the hospital for a short while, he's still recovering, 
but he's had lots of visits from all these people who keep telling him, your name is Dick Grayson, you were Nightwing, and you were Robin, and he's going, sure, whatever, I not that now. And he has no interest in being that now, because he's just so thrilled to be alive that he'd rather just live day to day. It's not probably biologically feasible to plan to live day by day if Part of that means at night you're throwing yourself in front of bullets and bad guys. So he'd rather not do that. As I've been discussing with people, this is a in a weird way, he's not Dick Grayson anymore, but he's more Dick Grayson than he ever was as far as we've ever known him. Because this is who Dick Grayson's original DNA was like before his parents were killed and he got taken in by Bruce Wayne. This is who Dick Grayson may very well have been if he continued to grow up as a circus performer, carnival performer with his parents on the trapeze, everything else. So in many ways, Rick Grayson is quite a bit truer to the DNA of who Dick Grayson was before the age of 12 than the one we've known all along. Therein lies, in my opinion, the real sole reason why I agreed to do this is because I thought what a fascinating exploration of a character if he does not know who he was, but he's very comfortable with who he is. That's what you can do with Dick slash Rick Grayson. This is a character you can go in so many different directions with. Hey, love Batman. Everybody loves Batman. Batman's an iconic character, but Batman, he is who he is, and there's there's some wiggle room, but not a lot. You can break his back, but he's going to get healed eventually. The, the way we're likening this in, in our conversations, from Scott's original conversation with me, he actually called me up while I was at, at a convention in Philadelphia, Keystone Philly in Philadelphia, and he called me up while I just happened to have gone out for tw- 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I left my table to go get coffee, and that's when he called me up. And said, we've got to talk. And I was like, what? I'm in the middle of a convention. And that's when he starts hitting me with all of this crap. So <laughs> I thought this is really fascinating because Scott brought up the analogy. This is what we did to Wolverine. And everyone thought we were crazy. And then they thought it was a, a six-issue story. Then they thought it was a one-year story. Then they thought there's no way they'll go more than two years with this. All of a sudden, Larry Hom is writing 75 issues of Wolverine without his is adamantium, right? What a fascinating exploration of a character that that this one little bit gimmick we did because we thought it was super cool in issue 25 of X-Men and issue 25 of Wolverine lasts for 75 issues. That's, what is that? That's seven years, right? Or close to it, six years. It's, It's over six years that it lasted. There's no reason why a good storyline can't, find incredibly interesting avenues of exploration for six issues or 60 issues. You don't know until you're exploring it. This could be over in a year or it may never be over. Who knows? I sure as hell don't. I'm sure I won't even be involved with it when the time comes, but that doesn't mean that that when you're telling sequential storytelling of monthly characters that have been around for 75 or 80 years, okay, that doesn't mean that you can't have five of those years be an exploration of Rick Grayson. In the scheme of an 80-year history, it's a drop in the bucket. He, he's been around for so long and has gone between being Robin and being Nightwing and being the Teen Titans. 
Uh, heck, he was for he had a one or two year run just recently where he was just as a spy, right? Just Grayson. Which I love that idea. It was it was a great idea. Yeah, I haven't read it yet. I I, I just caught up on some Rebirth Nightwing digital digital volumes. I haven't read the Grayson stuff yet. Tim Sealy said I got to read it, but I haven't yet. It was a good idea. It, it was something that you saw didn't wasn't going to last forever, but it's a great idea taking that character and putting him more of like a Jason Bourne or Bond format. It's like, yeah, that, that, it makes complete sense. Yeah, and look, DC's got a lot of baggage with Dick Grayson because cause Dan DiDio and Bob Harris are, are kind of both on record. as Everyone knows that they're not huge fans of, of the sidekick characters. They're not huge fans of Dick Grayson. They're not huge fans of the name Dick Grayson because no nobody under the age of 30 uses uses the nickname Dick anymore if your name is Richard. You just don't. It's an old man thing. My father-in-law is Richard, and he's, his nickname is Dick. It always feels incongruous and something you have to try to explain when you say that his name is Dick Grayson. And we all grew up with it, so we think it's natural. But it's actually unnatural for the age of the character who exists in the present day of storytelling. Dick Grayson, you're writing this month in Nightwing, is 25 years old. He doesn't exist in 1967, having been published for 20-plus years as Dick Grayson. The character exists in his world today, 2018, and no 25-year-old is named Dick in 2018. It just doesn't happen. It's funny. I'm watching, I'm reading these threads online when people were complaining about us changing his name to Rick, What's wrong with Dick? Plenty of people are called Dick. And then they started to list on the thread people whose names are Dick, like celebrities that you know, Dick Clark or Dick Gregory or whatever. Not a single person they listed on that thread was under the age of 70. Not a single one. So what the hell are you saying then? That the, 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 the name Dick Grayson is normal and natural when you can't find a single 25-year-old who's named Dick? So I, I think it's silly because I started reading the character when I was in 1967, when I was five, six years old, right? But, but I understand as a writer what the realities of our characters are supposed to be and should be. The fact he's changing his name from Dick Grayson to Rick Grayson is most certainly it's a Dio Harris peccadillo. It's, it's a preference on their part. I get that. That's fine. You can be mad about that. But Scott came up with a super smart story reason why he's calling himself Rick. And he's finally putting it in the plot because I just read the plot for 54. So he finally put the scene in there. And it's one of the things that sold me on doing the whole story. I was, I believe me, I was inclined not to be involved in this at all because I did not want to be party to the dismantling of, of, of Dick Grayson's character. And in turn, it almost turned into the opposite. It, it made me a torchbearer for the strengths of Dick Grayson's character through this storyline that we're telling. And Scott told me why his name was Rick, R-I-C, which I thought was stupid and a Brooklyn hipster affectation, which bored me. And then Scott tells me the scene he had in mind. And I go, that's fantastic. Okay, that's great. That's why he wants to call himself Rick. That makes so much sense. And you'll see it in 54. I don't want to give it away. You'll see it in 54. And it's a small, little, subtle thing that makes you understand who this guy is trying to figure out he should be. He doesn't want to be the person everyone's telling him he was because he doesn't think he is that person. That's interesting as hell. It really is interesting as hell. The hero is still in there somewhere. He's just got to find the reason why he's a hero. 
And that's the stuff Scott and I have started talking about now. But the, look, it's DC and it's monthly comics. I shouldn't say it's DC. That's not fair. It, it's the same with Marvel. It's monthly superhero comics. You could be working on this stuff for six issues and that's it. You're out. You're done. I try really, really hard not to spend a lot of time anymore thinking about 12-year, 22-year, 3-year arc plans because I think it's nonsensical now. I, I don't expect I'll ever last a year to two years to three years on any comic ever again in my life, unless it's a creator own thing I'm doing myself. So, so I'm, I'm talking to Scott a little bit about the plot, but I've already told him I don't want to invest too much in it because I'm just scripting this and you're plotting it. And it's your job. And we may not be here after six issues or I may not be here and you still will be, or you may not be here. And I may, who knows? I don't know. But why think about issue 14 when we're in the middle of a bi-weekly schedule and we got to get our third issue out. So, so there's a lot of ways this can go. There's a lot of interesting possibilities and opportunities. There's a really, really great chance to explore the character of Dick Grayson through this story while we're kind of watching this new person come out of a cocoon. I think all of that's really, really interesting. I think if it's done well, it really could be a great exploration and definition of why Dick Grayson's a great character. Yeah, I'm looking forward to just catching up on it. Uh, I love the Dick Grayson character. And I, I like this idea where by basically making Rick Grayson you show what's great about Dick Grayson and really get to the heart of the character and have some uh, great in-depth look. So uh, I think it's a great idea. I think with, with the right talent behind it, I think it's going to be fascinating. At the end of the day, it, it could be the greatest idea in the world, and if it's bad execution, it doesn't make a difference. It could be the worst idea in the world, and if it's great execution, it doesn't make a difference because it's it's a bad idea. You know what I mean? I think this is an excellent idea to explore. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I think the execution is going to be great because I just don't know yet. We are so under the under the under pressure. It's it's been put together kind of almost in the exact opposite way from how you want monthly comics together. <laughs> um, so so I, I can't tell you for sure yet whether I think it's all going to work out or not because it's way too early still and there's there's just too many moving pieces on this project because it, it's such a schedule burden. It's such a new exploration of a character that everyone is figuring it all out as we go along and, and that makes it that makes it a little bit daunting and a little bit frustrating but ironically enough, it's not that dissimilar to Dick Grayson letting go of the trapeze and and knowing that the next the next line is going to be in front of him. You know what I mean? Like you got you got to kind of let go and and give yourself to the air to see how it goes, see if you can swing. So we'll, we'll either swing or we'll crash and die. I look forward to seeing which one happens. Yeah, me too. So that's not the only project you're working on right now. What what else do you have? Uh, what other irons do you have on the fire? I have a creator owned comic on Webtoon, which is a digital platform. Uh, it is called Outrage. Uh, I'm working on it with my co-creator, Riley Brown, who has done Cable and Deadpool work with me before. And Jay Leaston is inking it. Pat Brousseau is lettering it. And Matt Herms is coloring it. Outrage is the bully who bullies the bullies on the internet. If you're a jerk on social media, Outrage appears out of your social media device from pixelated digital floating light and and solidifies into the form of outrage and smacks the shit out of you if you're a jerk on the internet outrage is going to come get you that sounds kind of cute and fun until outrage decides to start going after some people who are higher up 
on the 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 ladder of political power, and that gets the interest of the FBI, who need to try to figure out who and what this thing is. And so the story kind of becomes a mystery: who is outrage? And once we learn who outrages in the by the middle of the story, it starts to become why is outrage? Why are we being this way? Why are we acting this way? What is it about this strange thing called the internet that is showing the worst of us more often than the best of us? It's Deadpool-ish in in its humor. I've likened it to if you consider Deadpool your id, then outrage is more like your super ego. Very, very presumptuously arrogant about his superiority to you as you are just some imbecile who is releasing your bile and hate in such a cowardly way on on the internet. We're having fun. Webtoon is a really exciting digital publisher. It's free to read. Everything on the site is free to read. It's an advertiser-driven platform. They're a Korean publisher. They've launched a whole bunch of new content in the last month from North American and UK creators Uh, including a new book from Stan Lee, a project from Stan Lee called Back Channel, a new project from Warren Ellis and Colleen Duran called Finality, a new project from John Barrowman, the actor, a new project from Common, the actor-rapper. And just so you know, Outrage is outperforming all of those titles because we're kicking Um, (laughs) a, A chapter comes out a week. Each chapter is the equivalent of about five pages of panels. It is a vertical scroll. You can read it on your phone or your iPad. I like it on my iPad. It reads really well that way. Or your laptop if you go to webtoon.com. So you can download the app for free on your phone or your iPad. You can subscribe for free. You can read everything for free. Each chapter comes out once a week. Ours launches on midnight Tuesday, so it's a Wednesday chapter drop. It is a 26-chapter story, and chapters 1 through 8 are online right now. Chapter 9 will be online in about two hours. And we're having a lot of fun, and it's interesting, and it's going to take some unexpected turns that hopefully will hold up a little mirror so that all of us can look at ourselves and say we are pretty pathetic people. The design of Outrage is fantastic. It is such an eye-catching design to the character. That's O'Reilly. So cool. He, he does such a great job. I ha- I, all I wanted was a blank faceplate that you could put really rough face scribbles on it, like, like almost like a smiley face, but v- a variety of expressions on a smiley face. And Riley is the one who came up with the idea of, of a, almost like a television screen and the more scratchy look to the eyes and the mouth. And it, I think it works really well. It's like a, it's like a Daft Punk with, with a TV screen on the front. I think, I think it is a, a really, really unique and interesting visual. I, I'm, I'm really happy with it. Yeah, it looks great. Um, everyone should check it out and uh, webtoons.com. And very cool. And you, you got very, two very cool, very different projects going on right now. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't done much in comics for quite a while, actually. I was just doing, like, custom comics for Marvel and DC. I, I, the majority of my workload has been outside of comics for several years now. That tends to be a little more interesting to me than comic books. But Riley and I have been wanting to do outreach for quite a long time, and, and it took a little while for the contract to be done up, and it took a while for us to get enough chapters in the can to 
to be able to launch. So we've been working on Outrage quite a while, even though it's just coming out now. The Nightwing thing came out of left field, and it's absurd. Like, <laughs> like already, already, I'm like four issues into it. It's like holy crap! It just started like six weeks ago. So, so that's kind of interesting to kind of be back in the comic book game after kind of having having comfortably not been in it for quite a while. So one last thing I got to ask you, gosh, I mean, it's been so great talking with you, and thank you for being so generous with your time. My pleasure. Before I let you go, we got to talk about Deadpool a little bit. Okay, just a little. Just a little, because I'm sure you get all the same questions. I do. I really do. So find a way to ask it in a different way. <laughs> I just want to know... A lot of people like the visuals of Deadpool, and Deadpool looks great. It's a great costume. It's a great mix of... Rob, Rob's design is fantastic. It's it's Spider-Man meets Punisher, just like he described him to me. What I always loved, what and what always made Deadpool different for me, is the humor, quick-wittedness. And it was different than Spider-Man, where Spider-Man would just chatter because he was nervous. Deadpool, it's just this zany brain going all over the place. How does it feel for you seeing what Ryan Reynolds does with this character on screen and it being such a true interpretation they've eventually been able to do of the humor that you were able to imbue him with? I think they've done a fantastic job. My hat's off to them because they're very talented. Uh, Ryan and Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick all are very, very talented. Rhett and Paul are really good writers and have been for quite a while. When I found out they were originally going to write the script after Zombieland, that was a long time ago, and I thought, oh, these guys are smart writers. This, this, they, they may get it. And, and I knew that Ryan cared tremendously about the character, but I don't know that that necessarily always equates to understanding the character. In this particular case, I, I think 100%. Ryan totally understands the strengths of this character. Um, I, I think I couldn't be luckier to see them take such a challenging character to put up on screen and and have crafted two incredibly solid two-hour movies around this guy. I don't think he's an easy character to write. I, I don't think he's certainly not an easy character to write in a self-contained story that appeals to a wide variety of people. And that's what the two movies have done. They're, it's not fanboy masturbation. It's it's not only appealing to a superhero audience. It's it's not only appealing to an R-rated scatological audience. Um, the first movie especially was actually quite a wonderful little romantic adventure. <laughs> and a lot of women who normally wouldn't have been interested in the character possibly they're interested in Ryan Reynolds, but normally they wouldn't be interested in the character, enjoyed the movie tremendously because it had so much heart to it. So I'm really, really glad about all of it. I couldn't I couldn't be any happier with, with how they've handled the, the property. I hope, since I get a check every time they make a movie, I hope they make a movie a week. Leaning into what you just said there, my parents recently were up for a visit, and it's like, eh, put on a movie. And my, my parents are they're in their early 70s. And it's like, eh... I'm curious, and I put Deadpool in for them, and they are not comic book people. My mother said after it was over, it's like, here's the thing. For the first five, ten minutes, I didn't think it was for me, and then I really started liking it. And it's because it has the humor and the, the, the violence and everything, but there is a real story there. The thing is that the, the thing that the guys get, and and not every writer who works on the character gets it, is that it's not just Bugs Bunny. It's Bugs Bunny meets Frankenstein's monster. If you don't have fifty percent of each, then you don't have the whole. 
and and you can tell an individual story, which is seventy percent Bugs Bunny and thirty percent Frankenstein's monster, or the other way around. You can tell a story that way, but you have to balance it out over the course of your monthly flow. These guys got it in a two-hour movie both times that he's he's got to be equal parts both. He can't just be Bugs Bunny. There has to be the sadness, the tragedy, the loneliness, the desire to fit in, and the inability to fit in. All of those things have to be part and parcel to the character. Otherwise, all the funny stuff he says, all the rude and wrong stuff he says, you can't forgive him for. Because you can't forgive him just because it's funny. You forgive him because you know that it's coming out of a place of tremendous pain and loss, right? (laughs) So that's why you forgive him his sins. If you don't have both, then then he can't get away with being the clown. That's all I got for Deadpool for you. I'm sure people want to find more about Deadpool. You've done Deadpool interviews. I, I want to talk about Nomad. Fabian, this, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for this time. My pleasure. It was really, really good. Really, really good talk. Really good time. Thank you very much for bringing out the unexpected. Huh, that's what I try to do. Much rather that than the usual. We, we lo- love having you, and hopefully you'll come back at some point. My pleasure. Anytime we could do it. Let's well, let's let's see how long I last on Nightwing, and let's maybe wait until the first season of Outrage is over. We'll find out if we get a second season on Webtoon, and we can talk about other stuff too. this episode of the Cosmic Geppetto Podcast. Big thanks to KJ and Alex. They jumped in at the last minute and were amazing. Both of them are welcome back at any time. Extra special big thanks to Fabian Nisiesa. When I met him at Keystone Comic Con, he graciously offered to come on the show. But people say stuff like that all the time. He actually did it, and he was incredible. I hope he comes back and would promise to get his name right next time. But let's be real. Upcoming to the Cosmic Geppetto Podcast, Eric Deutsch and I talk about the passing of the legendary Stan the Man Lee. Till then, stay marvelous. She's against the wall The towers lick the wrecking ball Upon the ground While a boyfriend did I love a town Subscribe to the Cosmic Geppetto Podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Rate and review us while you are there. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic underscore Geppetto and we will follow you back. We would also love to hear your ideas for upcoming episodes, so email us at CosmicGeppetto at Comcast.net or visit our website www.cosmicgeppetto.com It's fun, you should visit. Can't you just be the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man? The semen spread upon the ground While a cowboy dead out of a child While a cowboy's dead